And now, it's time for Lawyers for Jesus Radio, lighting our path through law. A show about faith in the law and in the marketplace. Featuring the partners from the law firm Mauk and Baker. Located in downtown Chicago, Mauk and Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Good afternoon. Welcome to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Noel Sterrett. I'm an attorney at Malkin Baker. We're a Christian law firm in Chicago. We help uh, serve churches, ministries, not-for-profits, individuals. I do a lot of federal litigation where I get into uh, kind of the sexy constitutional law issues, (laughs) free speech, religious freedom. I have a lot of fun. Uh, Read a lot of the work of our um, current guest, David French. Uh, Glad to have you on. So thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. No, it's it's really exciting. You know, I um, you've done work on free speech on campus. You've done religious liberty work. Uh, you're now uh, a writer and senior fellow at National uh, Review and um, graduate of Har- Harvard Law. Um, you served our country in the armed forces. Uh, you're a constitutional law attorney. Uh, you've done so many things, and I just really want to thank you for all your service to this country. And uh, your ongoing work in the culture uh, right now, and I think it's incredibly important, and I just read your article on uh, The Rock, because I, I think when uh, I, I read the article, I was saying, yeah, you know, we have to ask these questions. Where where are we, where can we best uh, serve our country? You know, where where is my highest purpose? Um, and and you explained how The Rock, the wrestler, uh, you know, right now is serving a very valuable role. And, you know, I, I always, uh, when I look at your career, I say, wow, you've done so many things. You've served in the armed forces. You've been a constitutional law attorney. Uh, you've worked with FIRE, the Alliance Defending Freedom. And now you're a writer for National Review. And I'm just kind of like, man, we could really use you in the courtroom. We could re- really use you here. Uh but maybe let's start with this question, and this may be a surprise, is how do you see yourself and your role as a writer for National Review in terms of these issues? Because, frankly, given your skill set and all that you've learned and, and done and your experience, uh, you certainly could be used in the courtroom and in a different sphere. But how do you see what God's doing right now through your work as a writer? Well, you know, I think that one of the things one of the things I enjoy most is, you know, you walk through some of those different things, different hats that I've worn over the years. Uh, and on the one hand, you say it's sort of like, well, doesn't this guy know what he wants to do when he grows up? <laughs> uh, I've done a few different things. But on the other hand, uh, what I'm able to do is bring that experience into my writing. Um, you know, when I, when I write about the First Amendment and when I write about what's happening on campus, I have practiced, I have... Uh, I've been involved in litigation against universities protecting the First Amendment, I mean, on cases from coast to coast. I mean, uh, when I talk about what the academic culture is like, I've been a, I've been a uh, uh, professor at an Ivy League law school. I was a lecturer at Cornell Law School. Um, when I talk about the war on terror, I, have sur- I served in Iraq during the surge. So these things are real-world experiences that I think, and what I try to do is I try to bring that real world experience to my writing. There's a, uh, there, one of the things that's unfortunate about the writing world these days is an awful lot of it is, is done by people who don't have that kind of experience, who haven't seen some of their ideas play themselves out in the real world. Now, that's not to say that, uh, a writer who doesn't have some of these real world experiences can't be 
outstanding and valuable and, and, and bring real contributions. I mean, some of our best writers have been writers, you know, from day one. No, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that that's my, I feel like that's one of my specific roles and, and one of the specific things that I, you know, that I feel, um, you know, that I feel my career has been leading up to. Well, I think that's great. And I, you know, I'm glad that you are where you are writing about all these issues, though I really wish you would have ran for president. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I understand that you understand you, you heard God's calling differently. I think at this point, I think more people would have been on board, uh, your candidacy. Uh, but let's turn to that issue because, you know, when, when you think of justice, and uh, you, recently you wrote an article called Justice is Bigger Than Narrative. You think of the concept of justice. Now, as, an, as a Christian lawyer, lawyer who litigates cases, you know, that's really what we're ser- searching for. You, you know, in as much as we can get it from the courts, we're searching, seeking justice, and we're looking for the truth, and we're, you know, mounting all the evidence that we have in order to establish what the truth is and, and to get a just result. But in terms of writing— uh, you know, as a, as a writer for National Review and in dialoguing with these issues, um, talk to me more about narrative versus true justice, as you put it in that article. And and your article was written in the context of the police shootings and, and you know, the, the yeah. typical uh, uh, places that we entrench ourselves after a young man is shot by a police officer and kind of the battle lines that have been drawn. So talk to me about this 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 concept of justice being bigger than narrative. Yeah, you know, that, and when I use the term narrative, I'm using it in the, in the sense that it's been used a lot recently, that, that one of the battles, that the political battle, that the cultural battle that we have in this country is about which narrative rules the day. Uh, and by narrative, you know, I almost mean that with like a capital M, like a, the, mega, the meta story of our lives and of our culture. And so, you know, just to take, so for example, the, the, the police shooting incidents, the narrative pushed by one side, for example, is that the police have been systematically exploiting and, op- and oppressing um, communities of color in this, you know, in this, in this country for generations. And that um, the police have been, that narrative says the police have been uh, instruments of injustice and the police have been instruments of oppression. And so one of the things that ends up happening is you will see people who believe that larger narrative. They will look for and they will find cases, and you can always find cases in this country where police have behaved uh, abominably, where police have committed crimes, and they, they sort of fit seamlessly into that narrative, sure. like you know, plot points in a novel. Uh, sometimes when, in, in what, what gets doubly un- unfortunate is when Sometimes the stories don't actually line up when, upon closer examination of the narrative. Think about the hands up, don't shoot lie of Ferguson. Yes. Um, but because the narrative is deemed to be so important, uh, that lie will keep being told. That phrase will keep being used. Yeah, and because I think that, that, re- that reminds me of uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, quote about how really as uh, what we need from our, our people in society is to take the a simple but courageous step to never participate in a lie, no matter how small. Right. And I and I think that, right. that that's really important. Yeah, and and that's beyond the means I think of most people these days. Uh, and and look, you see it on on the right as well. I mean, there's just no doubt about it on on multiple points. You know, one of the things that I've when I've been talking about um, some of the conduct in the Trump administration. I'll flip around and the I'll flip around the scenario and I'll say, well, 
what do you think would be happening, for example, on Fox News if Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, uh, campaign foreign policy advisor, national security advisor had all resigned because of ties to Russia, and Hillary's attorney general had recused himself or herself because of tie of um, you know less than than full disclosure to during confirmation hearings, and that House Intelligence uh, Chair had recused himself because of. Um, strange conduct that served the administration's interests in the conduct of an investigation of those ties. Right. You know, when you put it like that, everyone knows what would be happening. Fox News would be essentially, you know, breaking news alerts would be scrolling across all four uh, sides of the TV screen. Under uh, the title, lock her up, lock her up. Yep. Exactly, exactly. And so one of the, the problems we have is you think, well, but the narrative, the narrative is that... Um, the deep state is out to get Donald Trump. That's the narrative. That's the story. That's the real story. So whenever you hear anyone saying, ignore these particular facts that are being outlined because there's a quote-unquote real story that you should be paying attention to, then your spidey sense should be tingling, so to speak. Because it might be true that some of the facts that you're talking about might be, let's say maybe they are less important than other facts. But we don't ignore them for the sake of other facts. And, and that's one of the problems that we have in, this, in discourse in this country, is we are so concerned with who's ultimately going to win and who's ultimately going to lose that we will ignore and disregard facts and circumstances that if our political opponents, had, uh, if they were attached to our political opponents, we would never stop talking about them. Sure. <laughs> and, and, and that that's a real problem. Yeah, this is Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Noel Sterrett, an attorney with the law firm of Malcolm Baker. We're the host of the Lawyers for Jesus Radio uh, show. We This airs every Sunday. Uh, please tune in every week. We talk to a wonderful guest today. Our guest is David French, uh, senior writer for the National Review, um, and uh, a man of many hats and, and talents. And uh, I think this issue about uh, justice being bigger than narrative is incredibly important, especially in the Chicagoland area. And after the break, I do want to talk to you more about that because, um, you know, the recent uh, statistics that I read just pulled up today, uh, Chicago already this year, and it's only uh, middle of May, has endured nearly a thousand shootings and uh, over 220 murders. And uh, most of this is, uh, you know, gang violence uh, and doesn't involve uh, police officer shootings. Uh, but really, what what I, I I'm always sad because this is not uh, just a new problem in Chicago. In fact, it's been going on for many years, if not decades. And uh, I I see that we haven't been making much progress because true justice, the things that God cares about, the lives of these these young men uh, and those that are taken, and and the lives of the officers that are involved, uh, and then, and true justice is is kind of lost in in the mix as both sides of the issue, be it the pro police pro uh, law enforcement or the pro, um, I, you know, I don't even know how to put it. <laughs> they retreat to their narratives and they say, this is, this is what we do. And this is, fits our narrative. And this is why we're going to disregard everything else that you're saying. And so let's talk more when we come back at the break, how do we address these issues uh, and how do we make sure that we're not, uh, falling prey to the narrative being bigger than justice? Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Noel Sterrett, a partner at the law firm of Malcolm Baker in Chicago. We are talking with David French, senior writer at the National Review. 
We're talking about uh, some pretty heady issues, and I think one that's very important uh, in today's culture and today's society, which is true justice and whether or not we are seeking it, whether or not we care about the truth, or whether or not we are so committed to our narrative, you know, our pet narratives, you know, the ones that uh, everybody in our congregation may agree with or somebody uh, in our family may agree with, or this is what Dad said, or this is how I was raised. Um, You know, we have these narratives that... um, we want our side to be right. We want the other side to be always wrong. And uh, justice often is not uh, completely on my side. Uh, you know, it's hard as a Christian attorney to uh, acknowledge that because I like to be right. Um, but, David, let's talk about what you mean by true justice. Uh, you just wrote a, a very important article. And I, I, before you talk about the substance of it, uh, please tell people where they can find out more about what you're writing, uh, what you're saying and speaking, uh, where they can read uh, National Review and, and, and follow you. Yeah, nationalreview.com. You'll find all my work there. Also, um, I'm at, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at David A. French. So it's very easy to find anything and everything I write because it's posted there and I tweet it out. <laughs> yeah, and you tweet often, and I appreciate it because uh, when you tweet, you often get reactions from both sides of issues. And I think that's a, that's at least one good way of discerning whether or not you are uh, kind of falling into a narrative versus uh, falling into the, the true justice. So talk to us about true justice and narrative and, and how you kind of um, regulate yourself and in, in checking yourself to see, you know, what am I doing? Am I advancing? Am I trying to advance a narrative? Am I being true to myself? Am I participating in a lie? Um, you know, those are the types of things that I, that I'm interested in. And, uh, what do you do and what do you, you know, would you encourage our listeners to do? Well, you know, one of the things that you, you see biblically that, um, justice depends upon impartiality. So for example, you know, um, there's admonitions to not favor the rich and also not favor the poor, um, when you're, when you're dispensing justice. In other words, you're looking for the actual truth. You're trying to be impartial. Now, that doesn't mean you're not biased in favor of certain ideas. You know, unashamedly, I'm biased in favor of the gospel. Right. Uh, I'm biased in favor of conservative economic and foreign policy and cultural ideas because I think that they are the things that the, the ideas that lead to human flourishing and to true justice in this world. But within that context, you know, I, I can believe conservative ideas are the best, but at the same time, that doesn't mean I shrink away from facts that are adverse to my positions, uh, facts or scandals that that could harm uh, ultimately the conservative cause. That um, you don't turn a blind eye to the truth if the truth is inconvenient. Mm-hmm. We all have ideas that we think are true and good, but the problem is you don't let your dedication to that idea trump your dedication to truth in any circumstance. So, well, you know, I, if you take the position that I do, that the police, though full of, uh, police forces, though full of human beings, who, uh, as we all know, are fallen and, and prone to make mistakes, are, in general, a force for good in American life. I think that is absolutely true, that in general, the police are a force for good, a very positive force for good in American life. Yes. Uh, just like I think the military in general, is a very positive force for good in American life. But that doesn't mean that if a police officer uh, engages in misconduct or, heaven forbid, even commits murder, that you automatically disbelieve a story about that case. 
just because, well, my larger narrative is the police do good. Um, conversely, there are people who hold the exact opposite view, which I think is mistakenly that the police are a force for oppression in American life. And so, therefore, they're automatically inclined to believe these reports, like the hands up, don't shoot, lie, you know, in the, in the Ferguson case. Um, but you shouldn't be automatically inclined to believe something that fits your narrative simply because it fits your narrative. You should have the ability to set back and examine the facts. And, and again, you know, this, what we're seeing, we're seeing this, this disturbing tendency to automatically believe things based on whether or not it, it advances your narrative on full display in all the messes surrounding Donald Trump. So just to take, for example, the most rec- one of the most recent disclosures, that he allegedly, uh, allegedly um, asked Director Comey to drop the investigation, of Michael, the FBI investigation of Michael Flynn. Now, we don't know if that's true. We know that the New York Times uh, says that there's a memo, that other news outlets are also saying that there is a memo. We're knowing that people have purported to read portions of that memo to reporters. Um, and we know that the memos have been subpoenaed. Uh, but we don't, so we don't know if it's true. But what's happening on Twitter and on uh, everywhere else and Facebook, I mean, you should see my Facebook feed, is people are running around assuming it's true and assuming it's not true. Right. So you have the people who want to see Trump impeached going, oh, he's, he has committed obstruction of justice. Sure. And then you see people who, um, somebody just wrote to me today that any time I'm quoting the New York Times and even... And believing and believing anything the New York Times is saying is true, then I'm somehow not committed to truth and fairness. Right. Um, as if every single syllable that comes out of the New York Times is false, which is completely wrong. So, you know, one of the thing, one of the things I try to do in my writing is I say, look, when there are contested facts, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to note that these are contested, and I'm going to explore the implications if one or the other is true. Mm-hmm. But I'm not gonna. I'm gonna hold off from saying what's true until I have more evidence. Well, sometimes uh, that keeps you from the hot take. You know, that's that's kind of yeah. uh, the, the where we're at in terms of the market dictating who gets attention. Is the first person to you know uh, run their mouth and rush to judgment uh, gets the first uh, radio show appearance or the uh, nightly news yeah. spot? And you know, I th- this is where. I think in some sense, because everybody's in such a rush to judgment and so committed to the narratives that we're, what we're seeing and, you know, our president's leading the way is that as a culture, we're having a crisis of credibility. Yeah. Well, you know, I've said this in other con- and, and to other folks, but reasonable is becoming the new radical. Yeah. Um, saying wait for the evidence is virtually a hot take these days. Um, you know, that, because we are so tribal and so polarized. And look, I get it. I mean, you know, it is, it is, there's something very comforting, uh, in having a sense of belonging that says, I am, I am with my people yes. on all things. But we're so tribal, um, that you're, that even saying wait for the evidence and, oh, wait, if this allegation is true, this is serious, is somehow being viewed as being a traitor to the cause. I mean, that's a dangerous position to be in. And, and, and the thing is, here's what's so funny about it is that, the level of dedication is being exerted on behalf of two people uh, in over the last year, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, who have shown no such dedication <laughs> All right. themselves to anyone else but themselves. Right. And so that's sort of the, the ultimate, the sort of the, 
the thing that is so sad and so pathetic about all of this is, you know, you look at the Democrat side and you've got people who to this day, I mean, oh, you know, it's just the greatest injustice of the world that Hillary Clinton didn't become president. And they're mounting this incredibly high moral high horse over that as if she wasn't a serial liar, you know, as if she hadn't engaged in her own corrupt activities. And and then people are saying, well, you know, I'm defending Donald Trump because I'm defending conservatism. Well, he's never been a conservative in his life. <laughs> so, you know, you, you kind of, you, you look at this unbelievable loyalty to people who are actually not really all that loyal to anyone but themselves, but that's the power of tribalism. Well, and, and not even that. When you look at what, especially, let's just speak to the Christians, okay? Because, you know, I, it's, it's hard for me to speak to, to people that don't uh, abide by the same book that I do. But when you look sure. at really what's going on, you have a, a worship of people and a worship of tribes that leads to, you know, when Jesus said, I am the truth, you know, he was holding truth up to be uh, the paramount principle. And, you know, he, both Jesus and Paul said, if my words are not true, you know, go, go for yourself and search them out. Take a look at what I'm saying and line it up with Torah and, and what the scriptures say. And I think that's one of the things that, that we're watching is we're ultimately watching the, the manifestation and, and the result of idolatry and uh when we have idols in our hearts and and truth be it be and jesus says he's the truth and the truth and justice are not the primary concerns that we have in life we can lead ourselves into idolatry where and and a sure sign of idolatry is that you're committed more to the narrative than to true justice sure well and it's also a lack there's a lack of faith yes because you know what a lot of people are saying is well i'm i the only bulwark, the only protection that we have in this country against any number of terrible, catac- terrible things happening is Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, man. Lord save us. You know, yeah, if that's your only bulwark, man, <laughs> wow, things are more fragile than I thought. No, no, our bulwark, the church's guardian, is, is not Donald Trump. Uh, the church's ultimate guardian is Jesus, is God. It's, you know, so so we already have the strongest possible ally, and so we don't need to advance and face the future with fear. But what we have is this enormous wave of fear that says, if we don't sort of, if we don't unconditionally, and and literally this is what we're beginning to see at this point, is sort of unconditional support for Trump. If we don't unconditionally support him, the cataclysm that will be visited upon the church is unthinkable. Yes. And, well, we're, we're, we're coming up to the break, but this is, it's been an honor to have you on. Uh, David French of National Review. Go look up his articles online. Read what he says. Follow him on Twitter. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. Attorneys at Malkin Baker, uh, call us if you have a legal issue, 312-726-1243. David, thank you so much for being on with us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. 